I go, people secretly and sometimes openly want to know how I can afford to travel year round. While I've spent over a decade traveling, I'm not even at the halfway point of seeing all 195 countries. However, there are quite a bit of people who have visited every country in the world. I plan to talk to all of them, asking them the sacrifices they've made to see every country, what were their favorites and least favorites, their craziest experiences, tips on how we can travel more, and yes, how they can afford to travel nonstop. I'm Kevin Liu, the host of the Pick My Adventure show, and I'm glad you're ready to hear what it takes to be one of the world's most traveled. I want to welcome Gina Morello to the show today. Gina finished visiting every country in December of 2020 in Mozambique, and she is currently living outside of Lisbon, Portugal. So we have a lot of great questions about uh, overseas living and trying to make a life there. But also, first, let's start with how did you decide you wanted to see every country in the world? Uh, well, first, thanks, Kevin, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, so I didn't start my quest thinking I would visit every country. It just kind of evolved out of um, a love for traveling. So I I had gotten to about 100-ish countries around 2013. I was working as a, a consultant with a, a lot of airline clients, and my colleagues and I started um just comparing notes and we started counting countries up and we went through the whole process not knowing that there were communities out there already um and so we you know went through the back and forth what list should we use and this that and the other um and it was like kind of like a friendly competition to see who could carry on and, and visit more countries and then Around when I got to like 120 or so, I decided I might as well uh, go for it and go to all the countries. Um, and so that's that's how that's how I fell into it. It wasn't something I started off uh, with the goal in mind. You know, I've heard that from a few travelers. So I, I spoke to Romaine Wells a, a few weeks back, and he's um, the first black American man to travel to every country and first Caribbean man to travel to every country. And he said the same thing that once he got to hundred, he's like, I might as well just go for it, go for all of them now. Um, so, so as you were going about your, your, your travels and you decide, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm going to go to see every country now. Uh, how were you able to make this happen in terms of your work, your career? Like how are you able to afford to do this? Right. Yeah, that that's the tough thing. I um I my most of my career has been airline related. And so I'd say the first half of my career I worked at the corporate headquarters for uh American Airlines. I know Romaine uh works for United Airlines. Yes. And so that's certainly helped to get get me started. I mean I actually started with American Airlines and thought, well, I'll work here a few years and enjoy the flight benefits because you get free flights. And little did I know they call the flight benefits the golden handcuffs because people start working there and they get kind of addicted to the flight benefits and they never want to leave. So at the time, you had a lot of really tenured people there, you know, people that have worked there 30 years, for example. Um, 
So that helped start me off. Um, like I said, about halfway through my career, I, I moved to a technology company, but it was also related to airlines. Um, and my clients were airlines across the globe. So they would send me to example to uh, Ethiopia, or I had three different clients in Russia, um, Kenya, Papua New Guinea. And so I was able to visit either new places or repeats and then do side trips, like either on the weekend or, or afterwards um, that, that helped me visit more countries. And then mm -hmm. also since my company was paying for my travels, I got like points and airline miles mm -hmm. and, and that, um, and I was still able to, um, you know, book free flights on my completely personal travels and, and uh, visit more countries that way. So it wasn't until actually I got about to the end of my uh, finishing my list, I'd say maybe, maybe I had 15 left that I decided to take a, what I called sabbatical. We didn't really have sabbatical. So I just quit um, my job. It was supposed to be for one year and uh, I was going to finish during, during that year and then go back to work as a, a freelancer. Mm -hmm. Can I ask more about your work? What is it that you were doing? Because I'm sure a lot of people would love to be in that same position where they're going to remote countries and being able to work and accumulating all these miles and points. Yeah, it wasn't a bad gig. I mean, I really loved my, my job. Um, but I, I studied, I had kind of a technical master's degree. I studied operations research, uh, in, in, uh, at university of Miami, not, uh, you know, a top tier school or anything, but i still landed in the operations research department at American Airlines, this type of background. It's basically applying optimization and statistics to solve business problems. And so since airlines are such a huge operation, if you make a, a teeny tiny percent improvement in a process or something, it's, it's worth a lot of money. So I started off there and I moved to the business side, uh, doing uh, pricing and, and revenue management ancillary revenues, like uh, things people don't like, right? Like uh, selling seats and baggage and, <laughs> uh -huh. and fair bundles. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of heavy analytical stuff, but they hire a lot of people with business degrees, finance degrees um, into the corporate headquarters. And there were a ton of young people working there at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was young at the time too. <laughs> And so there were always people to travel with, groups of people. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. So that um, that gave me the specialized knowledge um, to move to the technology company um, to do the consulting. Because so I was still I was still doing the same thing, but I was now a tech, just a technology vendor that was visiting the airlines to help them, either with business processes or with technology if that makes any sense. I mean, basically I go to the airlines and I help them make more money. It could be technology related or it could be just business process related or some sort of strategy, something like this. I see. So are there any hacks that you can tell us about or any industry secrets that might help people travel more or more efficiently or things that they can avoid? 
Um, I feel like all this stuff is pretty well known nowadays, but I mean, I, I kind of surround myself with travelers, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, definitely the points and miles game obviously needs to be played, but people outside of the U S don't necessarily have access to the, the type of reward cards that Americans do. Um, so it's a little bit more challenging for them to do that, but, you know, traveling on a, um, like a, a weekday, like Tuesday, Wednesday are, are the cheaper days because um, at least historically the, the business travelers are traveling like on Monday and maybe Thursday night or Friday. Um, and then leisure travelers are traveling usually Friday to Sunday. So like Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, our lowest fares usually it's actually a myth about buying the fares on a, on a weekday. I know I see that all, on a lot of blogs, but it's generally uh, a myth that booking on a certain day doesn't really help you. Um, but I know, like, for example, book, bookings is seasonal as well as the travel seasonal. So, like, um, uh, right after Christmas, you'll see... Uh, a spike in booking, let's say right in early January for future travel dates. So you want to make sure if you have, like, if you're trying to make, let's say spring break plan, you don't want to wait to do it until after your Christmas break. Cause that's when people go in all the Christmas chaos is done and they, they start, um, they start booking their next, next, plans for example so there's some seasonality to both the the booking cycle and also the travel cycle like never travel right before christmas or right after christmas but you can get a cheap fare like on christmas day or on uh new year's eve if if you don't mind being on a plane during those holidays so Hmm, I see. Now, is this stuff that you worked on or is this just these are hacks that you know from your own travel experience? Both. I, I spent, you know, I spent years of my life looking at uh, booking data and uh, web analytics and shopping uh -huh. data from different channels. So, um, yeah, I, ha I have a lot of experience looking at the actual data and then, of course, my own travel plan planning as well. I see. Now, what made, why did you have to go to places like Kenya or Ethiopia, Papua New Guinea? Uh, why, why did they have to send you there to actually do this type of work? Um, so a lot of the work for consulting is done, uh, face to face instead of remote. Um, even now it's better face to face just because the conversations that you can have, um, when you're sitting next to someone, or even if they want to show you things on their computer that they're working on or looking at data or charts and graphs, it's just a lot easier to do in person. Um, and the other thing is building relationships with the customer. You want to be seen as like a trusted travel advisor. I know that term gets thrown around a lot these days, but really yeah. the, it's about building relationships. They also need to like you and spend time with you. So if you're there on the ground and you go to lunch with them, or sometimes you know, if you have a long-term consulting customer, you'll, you'll get to know their, you'll 
get invited to their house or, you know, get to know their families. Like you become really good friends with them. So the relationship is really important in, in, um, in this, it's definitely not transactional work. Um, uh-huh. and the hope is that you, you're there a long time. And actually I ended up being, um, for one client in Abu Dhabi there, I was there for two years. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this, these aren't just like we, two week trips or a weekend trip. These are, you were actually living there. They put, they're probably putting you up in housing and how, how long, yeah. how many months of the year were you actually away for work? Um, yeah, that, that was, it was supposed to be three weeks a month on average. And then mm-hmm. you can go home a week when I, when I first started. So, I mean, that, it was supposed to be 75%, but then when you add in, you know, all the travel time, plus all my side trips, I was gone like pretty close to a hundred percent. Wow. So yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there were quite a few customers that I basically lived there. Like, um, uh, I had a customer in Rome that I was there for eight months. Also in Pakistan, I was there for about eight months and it was, it's hard on um, your health because you're eat- well. It sounds like you're complaining, but you're you're eating out. You're not eating healthy. You're not getting regular exercise. The jet lag is really terrible. Um, and so I like my blood pressure was up. My weight was up, and uh, it's just general mm-hmm. stress level was up. So it it's not all glamorous, that's for sure. And it it's also makes it hard on relationships at home or anywhere mm-hmm. really um that was a big downside and but that's true not just for our business mm-hmm. travel it's um, the kind of travel that we do make necessitates you being away for a long time yeah uh, I, of everyone that i've interviewed there was only one person who did it married and uh, i don't know if you know of uh, stefan krasowski yes uh, yeah, so he's uh, the founder of Every Passport Stamp on Facebook, which is a great group. And his uh, one thing that was a lead-in for his travels was he did all of his travels uh, via credit card points. And he did his while being married, and I, I just thought that was incredible because for me, I mean, I, I've only been to half of the countries. And it's I can't imagine doing it with a significant other because, one, they don't you know, it's rare to have somebody who has a, a flexible schedule, but also able to go on a whim. So it, it does really take back, take away from um, personal relationships, being married or kids. So did you ever uh, get married or have kids? I, yes, I was married for 10 years and uh, I met my hus- ex-husband at um, uh, American Airlines. And so he knew I, I had the travel bug. Um, and he went with me to the comfortable places, but then after, after a while he got tired of, um, like, I think I broke him with the Guiana's trip. We went to, uh, Suriname, Guiana, French Guiana, and he did not Uh enjoy that at all. And when I started traveling to (laughs) difficult places in Africa, he, he would just say, oh, I'm busy that week. I mean, he was joking, obviously, but he had no interest in going camping or on the more um, difficult trips. 
And he also had to plan in advance. His schedule was such that he couldn't just take a week off on a whim. But he was really supportive of me finishing my goal. Um, he actually encouraged me to take the the, the year off um, in order to finish the goal. But um, after I finished the goal, I think he expected me to um, be done with traveling. And for me, it's... It's truly a lifestyle and it wasn't a checklist. And I it really made it clear to me that I wanted a, a flexible lifestyle and I wanted to make a life that I could travel as much as I want and on a whim uh, if I needed to. And that I didn't want to go back to a, a full-time office job. I, I, yeah, I can't do that anymore. Yeah. So yeah, the travel thing um, was... One of the big reasons we drifted apart, um, we ultimately decided mm -hmm. we didn't have enough common interests and we parted ways about, uh, we split up. It's been a little over two years now that we decided to split up. So, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. And what do you think after two years, uh, did you, I, I'm sure it was a mutual kind of a mutual decision or, but are you any regrets on choosing this lifestyle over uh, the relationship? No, I think everyone has to be true to themselves. And uh, no, I think if I would have chosen to stay at home in Dallas for the rest of my life, I mean, we would have traveled obviously to some places, but it just, it just didn't suit me. Um, and it wasn't something I went in the relationship knowing and, and neither did he. So I think, I think it was a really good decision and I don't have any regrets at all. Sure. So, uh, I have never been married and I know I, I've realized that a lot of the reason is just because of the, the traveling that I do. And I feel, <laughs> One thing that you had mentioned that I feel bad for my future wife, hopefully if I, I, I am a dream of mine is to get married. So I'm trying to slow down my travels a bit and pursue that. And uh, I started to think to myself, I'm going to feel really bad for my future wife because all the exotic and exotic locations are pretty much pretty much off the list. You know, the Italy's and the Spain's and the France's and you know, I, I was thinking to myself when I, I did uh, Guyana and Suriname, and I really feel like that's those are only countries that a real traveler would enjoy or appreciate. Because for me, it was more like I, I just thought it was fascinating that you have these countries that don't speak Spanish uh, or, or Portuguese in, in South America. And they're just a blend of so many cultures and how it how those countries actually came about these countries that are so small but nobody really knows too much about them but i really when i was walking around i thought there's not there's not a this is not a place that people are going to go to lay out on the beach or has like a bustling old town or you know some some hip restaurants on a rooftop bar somewhere um, but yeah, I, I thought to myself that it's, it's going to be tough trying to complete every country. Although I don't know if I'm going to try to complete every country, but I do think the idea of it is fascinating. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about how you completed your trip. You said you finished during pretty much during the pandemic closed period where December, 2020, 
uh, how did you go about traveling and, and what did you do? Well, let's start with how, what did you do during the pandemic? Uh, when you, when the pandemic happened, how many countries did you have left? When the pandemic came, I had four countries left and I was, um, I had been in Russia in uh, Eastern Russia, uh, with some friends and I was transiting in Moscow. I was on my way to South Sudan, which would have been a repeat actually. Um, but I wanted to see the first time I went, I, I only saw the, um, Mandari and I wanted to see more of the tribes. And so some friends were going to see seven different tribes. So I was in Moscow and, um, and that's when all the countries were shutting down. And I said, yeah, probably not a good idea to go to South Sudan. Um, and uh, I went home instead. Yeah. And then I decided I was going to go for um, the the four countries, which were Cabo Verde, Nigeria, um, Namibia, and Mozambique. So I was just waiting for each one of those to open up and I was checking all the resources that I could. So EPS was one, but there were other Facebook groups and the IATA uh, Timatic application was really a, a lifesaver in that that was the, the system of record that the uh, gate agents or sorry, check-in agents look at to see what documents you needed to get into a country. And it, it still is. It was before the pandemic as well. Um, uh-huh. And so sometimes actually I would know a country was open and it wouldn't be updated in Climatic. And so I, I went to Namibia first on short notice when I saw it opened. And then I went back home and I decided that wasn't uh, so efficient so I went to uh, Turkey. I think a lot of people went to Turkey because it was open uh, pretty much the whole pandemic with very little restrictions. And I hung out in Turkey, traveling mm-hmm. around there. I rented a car and I just kept checking uh, the status of what was then the three countries. Um, so I think Cabo Verde hey. opened next. And I went. I went there. It was a bit problematic because there weren't flights yet between between the islands um so while i was able to get in i only went to the the main island uh, around there which was a little bit disappointing in terms of what i wanted to do there because before the pandemic i actually had flights booked there and i was going to go to a few different islands and do some hiking and, and things like that but instead i just went to the one island I mean, at this point, I figured it was the pandemic and whatever I could work out for myself, um, I did. So I I Mm -hmm. went back to Turkey after that, and I started planning for Nigeria. I had some pretty specific things in Nigeria I wanted to do. There were uh, some tribes, ethnic group, if you will, in the northwest part, the Kamberi tribe that I wanted to see. And then um, there's a, a floating village or slum in Lagos uh, that I wanted to visit. So I prioritized those and I found the, a local fixer and 
I went with kind of a dodgy fixer to get a visa on arrival because it was really hard to get a visa. You were supposed to get it from your country of residence and those mm. weren't quite open yet in the U.S. So I just uh, said, I'll try the visa on arrival with the dodgy blacklisted fixer that caused someone to be deported. And I'll just, if I get deported, then I'll, I'll try it again um, later. So what was it like getting into the last country, Mozambique? What was the process like once you got to Mozambique? And what, what, did, what did you feel? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, once I boarded the flight, I, I thought it was a really good chance that I would be allowed to enter. Um, I had to do the visa on arrival. And so that was a really slow process being Mozambique and all. But um, yeah, it, it was more or less smooth sailing once I boarded the flight. And um, yeah, there was a bit of anxiety. But once I got stamped in, I felt like a rush of emotions, like um, joy, and I got a little bit teary-eyed, and uh, I was super excited and feeling accomplished. But then, um, as I was as I was trying to make my way out, there was a like a I guess a fake porter that came up and wanted to take my bag and was trying to hustle me. So it snapped me back into reality. Like, okay, <laughs> I need I need to stay on my game because this is still. You know, it's I'm still traveling and there's still hustlers out there. So, yeah, no, it was it was a great feeling um, indeed. Yeah, no, uh, I a lot of times when I get to a country, I know that I, I, I get a sense of what I'm going to be getting into by the airport hustle. Uh, whether if there's a lot of people that as soon as you come out of the gate, if they're if they're trying to ask you whether you want a taxi i'm like oh i, I gotta put on my game face my negotiation face and figure out how this all goes Off, offline we talked a little bit more about the top 50 bars in the world um tell me a, a little bit about that style of travel and and what you try to seek out when you go to different countries and cities yeah so i i like to collect casually collect um the, the 50 best bars or top 500 bars, there's a few different lists. Um, and so I, I won't go to city just because they have bars on the list, but if I find myself in places with uh, the bars, then that I definitely make a point to go. Um, so that, so that's fun. It's um, there's several like in Lisbon, for example. So I've been to those several times and um yeah, it's just, uh, again, it's another thing to collect, and I like uh, the fun of it, and, it, and it's another small community. They all know each other. So I was just in, um, there's a Ulysses bar. It's in Alfama of uh, Lisbon area, and it's a really small, it's just four, four seats, and I was there talking to the guy, and he knows you know, all the other guys in Barcelona and Rome and Milan. Um, so yeah, it's a small community. I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. I, I did used to go to some Michelin restaurants, but now I, I've rethought that because it's actually too much food in one sitting for me to do a tasting menu. And obviously mm -hmm. it, it gets very expensive. So now I seek out more local recommended restaurants and also local bars too. Um, just because you know if there's a lot of locals in a place that it must be good 
Mm-hmm. And then local bars are always fun. So, for example, I was on a, a very difficult trip uh, in Gabon over the summer with um, it was a, a group tour in Gabon. And it was a, a revisit, but um, it was very diff- challenging logistically, in part because we were a group that were on a bus. But we got stuck in a few places and a couple of us just went to the local bar um, and and met a bunch of people and had a had a local experience that we wouldn't have had just sitting on on the bus so Mm. yeah it's a great way to connect with people um, and see what they're eating and drinking and Mm. and have a good time so everybody loves food and drink and you can learn a lot about a culture just from what they're eating and the, or the way they eat it, for example, like in Lisbon, for example, bacalao is very popular, and um, there's a lot of history behind that. I actually, unpopular opinion, I don't like it because it's salt, <laughs> salted uh-huh. cod that they basically rehydrate. Oh, and that's right. And it was back from when Portuguese were explorers, so let's say like 1450 to 14, 1500. They Mm -hmm. would take this salted cod on the boats with them because it was a way of preserving it. And Mm -hmm. so it's just really ingrained in their culture and they love it and they eat it at holidays Um, and it's tradition, but uh, it's great to learn about and everybody eats it. It's everywhere in Lisbon. I I just had it at a friend's house for (laughs) for Mm -hmm. a, a Christmas dinner and I just, I'm not used to it yet. It's very salty. Um, uh, I I just don't love it sure. as much. <laughs> sure. Hey, as local, local. I, as one of the most traveled friends in in my group of of people, a lot of the women will tell me, "You're lucky. You're a guy. You can travel um, by yourself. I'm a woman. I can't do that." What do you say to the women out there who say? I, it's not safe for me to travel by myself or that I can't do that. Well, I would say, yeah, if you dig a little deeper, you can, you can travel by yourself 100%. I mean, there are more challenges for sure with being a woman. Um, yeah, definitely. But you can go and travel by yourself everywhere and it just takes maybe a little bit more planning uh, to do it safely. I mean, I know women that hitchhike and couch surf and go without a plan. Um, but I think it's prudent to have a plan in in many places, even if it's just having someone pick you up at the airport, like a trusted car booked in advance. Um, I know that might be a luxury for some people. Or if you can book a tour... Um, but there's there's ways you can be safe. So one of the things probably wouldn't be don't go to bar a local bar and drink with the locals by yourself as a woman at night. Uh-huh. So you have to be a little bit careful of, about that. Um, um, but yeah, so so planning transportation, making sure you're not alone at night in a in a you know, a dark alley, things like that. Things you would do anyway in a in a big city. You just take those precautions. Um, making sure someone knows where you are 
at all times. That could be like sharing your location on your phone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What percentage of your travels are solo? Oh, that's a great question. Again, it goes back to what is solo? Is it just me without a guide? I, if you, you de define it that way, I'd probably say about 30% of me just on my own. Um, wow. Around, yeah. 30%. Uh, in, have, have you had any uh, bad situations or bad experiences? For the most part, I have not had uh, bad situations. So I, I, I want to tell you about a situation, but I don't want it to sound like um, I'm saying you need to dress conservatively, but <laughs> uh -huh. the, a couple of situations I had, I was not dressed. Um, so one was in Pakistan and I, I was wearing, uh, for packing reasons, I really was tight on um, space. And so I had like a tunic that just wasn't long enough. And I was wearing the over leggings and actually I got harassed a lot. So I hate to say like mm. that it was because I was dressed like that's not an invitation for men to uh, be obnoxious to you. But I found yes. like, um, like I was invited to take a picture on a, I was taking a train in Balochistan and then the conductor like grabbed my ass. Um, Oh. When I was yeah, so when I was in the conductor train, and I had a male friend there with me, um, mm -hmm. so I mean you have to be really careful in aggressive countries like that. Uh, I try Would to dress you... conservatively, <laughs> like uh -huh. in Afghanistan, I wear um, uh, an abaya and hijab. I did take uh -huh. my abaya and hijab off for photos when people weren't around so like uh in bandamir and bob uh Bamian, when there's no one around i pulled it down and took quick photos but in more conservative yeah. areas like harat i didn't i didn't take photos without my my covering on them because you there is a different reaction um from the local men when you have things showing um, and it's not because you deserve it because you wear a, a promiscuous dress or something. It's just because, mm -hmm. uh, it's complicated because of the culture. Yeah. So sure. definitely make sure you're dressed, um, conservative, like the local women wear. That's my advice. Mm -hmm. I know not all women do it, but, mm -hmm. um, it's, keeps attention away from you. And it's also respectful to the most conservative people that are there. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. So what happened with the, the conductor who grabbed your butt? Did you say something to him? Uh, did your friend say anything to him? No, 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 we just, no, I mean, we just left quickly. And I said something when we, when we got out of there. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, sometimes you, you see some things that are, are, are wrong or inappropriate. And yeah, I, I, I feel, these days I always try to say something or do something if I, if I see something wrong going on. But um, I think in a lot of countries, things aren't offensive as they are in another person's country. 
uh, I think I was, God, I, I was in one part of Asia and I, I saw these, these white tourists and they were kind of, do, they were in front of like an Asian temple. They were all trying to do the slanty eye thing. And I, and I just wanted to be like, Hey, this is not appropriate, you know? And, but you know, I didn't say anything. It was a group of people. And I just said, you know what, I'm just going to move on. But you have to be respectful of the local culture that you're in. And I think that sometimes people think that something's not offensive because they just have never heard it from anybody else. So I don't know if this conductor thinks that's appropriate behavior, but it's just unfortunate. Um, so let me ask you uh, everyone's favorite question, but it's I know it's very difficult for world travelers, and that's what it's, no, it's your favorite country. <laughs> yes. What's yeah, your favorite country? Yes. Number one question I get asked, and of course, it's impossible to pick a favorite, right? It's like saying, which, I don't have kids, but um, which kid is your favorite? Or at one time I had two cats, which cat is your favorite? Like it's, there's, each country has something to offer that's usually unique, um, whether it's the people or the wildlife or the landscape, the food, the drink. Um, so it's hard to pick, but I like culture, uh, sorry, countries that retain their original culture. So mm -hmm. I'll name a few, like, uh, Ethiopia is, is up there for me because obviously they've retained, uh, a lot of their local culture and customs. And it also has amazing history and unique food and some wildlife and landscapes. But I also, I like Yemen and Afghanistan and Pakistan places like that for the same reason. They they have their original culture. It hasn't necessarily been westernized completely. Um, I mean, in some places, the big cities, so for example, Karachi is pretty much westernized. But when mm -hmm. you get out to the rural places, you have a lot of authentic uh, cultural aspects that are still there and traditions. So, so those are some of my favorite countries. Okay, and do you have any least favorite countries? Uh, yeah, I don't like this question either because I don't like to pick on any, but I have answered it before. So one uh, that came to mind was Equatorial Guinea. Um, I've been there twice now. So the first time I went, I found it extremely unfriendly. Um, and But there's a history for that, right? They were a closed country for so long that they weren't used to tourists and especially not um, Western tourists, but eventually they started issuing um, visas for tourism and they made um, Amer uh, American citizens visa free for, for a while up until maybe this summer. So it made it easier for us to go, but they were also really paranoid because it was a, a dictatorship or is, um, with, uh, yeah, I won't get into all that, but so a lot of paranoia, right? And so not tourist, not tourist friendly, not used to being open and a lot of paranoia. So I found them just completely unfriendly and difficult to travel. And so that would be one of uh, my least favorite countries. Gabon also, I've been twice yeah. and both times I found um, it, it wasn't super friendly. It was a little mm -hmm. more friendly than Equatorial Guinea, but also it was challenging to get around, uh, which I like a challenge, but uh, 
it it turned into a nightmare on the second trip that I won't get into right now. Um, mm-hmm. And the uh, overpriced for for everything, just um, not a, not a good value destination. But there's some really interesting national parks there with really great wildlife. So I would still be open to go back for a, a third time sure. and, and try to suss those out. So they have mandrills there, in, uh, which are a very rare primate that mm-hmm. I'd really love to see in, yeah. among the wildlife. So it's so still I thought, on my <laughs> I thought Gabon was the place where you had some drinks with locals. And the is that the place that you had mentioned before? Yes, yes. Yeah. So okay. this, the second time I explored a lot more, but unfortunately the, the tour company that we were traveling with, um, it was like a five day bus ride to nowhere. It was like really <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Um, the bus broke down and the drivers quit uh, and we didn't make it to any of the world heritage sites we were promised. Wow. Yeah. So like yeah. part of the coping mechanism was, well, sure. okay, let's just go out whatever local town we were stuck in, sure. we would just go around to the restaurants and the bars and enjoy ourselves. Uh-huh. But um, yeah. Yeah. So, so experience wise, what have been some of your best experiences that stand out in your mind from all of your world travels? Well, obviously the most obvious one is finishing uh, my last country in, in Mozambique. So that rush of accomplishment um, but besides that, I also did a flight singing a tour uh, after we, we my ex-husband and I trekked the EBC Everest Base Camp and then did a helicopter flight singing over um, what basically the whole route to advance base camp and North Cole and to see Everest. And we got to see all the ice fields and, and uh it really brought, it was just so beautiful. It brought like tears of joy to, to my eyes, just being in the helicopter. And I was like, wow, I can really see why people would want to climb Everest. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it's just incredibly beautiful uh, place that um, is so different from everywhere else. So that, that stands out. And then um, I'm a mini eclipse chaser. So I've been, mm-hmm. I think I've done five so far, but I, I've met people, again, this is another thing people collect, right? So if you mm-hmm. go on these tours and you meet people that have been to, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 eclipses. So, um, mm-hmm. I went in 2015 to Svalbard, Norway, and I did the solar eclipse there, there was a really low chance of clear skies, but we had perfectly blue skies. It was, it was March of 2015. And so it was amazing eclipse to see. And then that night we took a dog sled to, uh, outside of town and it was March. So the Northern lights were still visible and we were able to watch like, uh, the Northern lights dance around us. And so, yeah, total eclipse during the day and Northern lights at night in Svalbard with the uh, dog sledding transportation in between that uh, stands out as a, as a great travel experience for me. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, you talked a little bit about collecting things. People collect certain experiences. Is there anything else that you collect outside of travel experiences? Well, we talked about bars. Um, I collect that a little bit, and uh-huh. um, I'm a budding Eclipse chaser. But no, uh-huh. I, I don't consider myself like a collector. Like, I have some travel friends that collect everything, like national parks and golf courses and ski runs and uh-huh. stamps. But no, right. I'm not a real collector or counter. I just, I do things more because I'm, I'm interested or I love them. Um, but I'm actually not good at administrative stuff. So I don't keep a spreadsheet. Oh, I have friends that have spreadsheets of every flight they've been on, every airport, every airline. Wow. Um, I'm not that much of a collector, but sure. yeah, I, of course I collect airlines as well, being in the industry, but it's uh-huh. all gear and not, not written. Yeah. On a list. Yeah. You, you know, I keep all the emails, like email confirmations that I've had of like hotels and, and airlines. And I think one day I, I, if I ever had the time, kind of like what you're saying, I'd love to spreadsheet it out, but I mean, who wants to go through all of that and take the time to do all of that? You know, there's too much life to live right now. Um, now, do you think if you weren't in the, hadn't gone into the airline industry, you would have eventually saw every country? Do you think that that would have still happened? Wow. I, that's, that's a great question. It's hard to, it's hard to see how, I would have had the opportunity necessarily or the motivation, but I, I always had a, the love for traveling. So maybe I would have made it work some other way. Um, I really hope I would have. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to think about like how our situations kind of led to this, but yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Everyone has a different story and um, uh-huh. yeah, I'm grateful for, how mine turned out. Like I, I got to work in a really interesting industry. I, I tried other industries and found them extremely boring for me. <laughs> uh-huh. So I, I, I worked in an industry that I love and it allowed me to travel. But, you know, nowadays things are so different. Um, maybe, you know, you, you don't need, you don't need a job, a company to send you places. You can do it remotely these days with, with remote work and uh, social mm-hmm. media, you can fund your travels in other ways nowadays. So it's true. So, <laughs> uh, so when I was talking to Louisa, the 79 year old traveler who had visited every country, just finished her list recently, she is still working right now at 79 years old. And I told her, I said, you know, with the amount of attention that you have, you're an influencer now. If you want to travel for free and quit your job, I'm sure that many travel agencies, many countries would fund your travels to their country to come visit. And she hasn't really given that much thought because her fame is pretty newfound. I mean, she wasn't even seeking any kind of fame, but you're right. I mean, nowadays as an influencer, you can travel for free. You can you can make it a go. You can. I've met people on the road who travel and then they work in hostels um to kind of pay for their accommodations while they're living there for maybe a month or so and they just keep moving on they find little jobs in every place that they go um so what about like worse experiences have you is there experience an experience that stands out in your mind that this was like the pits of my travel 
Um, yeah, there, I mean, there have been a few things that have been really challenging, like traveling in Central Africa, uh, it's always challenging. So there's always gonna be car breakdown and really dirty uh, accommodations and difficult roads and things like that. People trying to rip you off. So that, but I kind of expect that. So I've lowered my expectations when I know that that's coming, but some like really kind of crazy travel experiences. Um, so one time leaving Pakistan, we um, actually, we were helping the airline work on a privatization plan and people started getting really angry about the airline privatizing. So there were like protests, which turned into riots and there were like fires and gunshots and we actually couldn't go to work for a couple of days. So we decided to leave, but people were blocking the airport and there were like fires in the road and people were banging on the windows. And I didn't think we were going to get to the airport, but we did make it out. Uh, no problem. But actually the CEO ended up resigning because um, uh, two people were shot and killed or one was killed. I think the other survived. So he ended up resigning for the, privatization plan and that was in 2016 maybe and actually the airline now uh, is again trying to privatize so I hope it goes better this time around so that was one that was scary the other one it and it sounds like almost like a joke or like a bad movie but my friend and I were went to Arba Minch and we wanted to pick up a, a local guide or a driver to visit Omo Valley on our own without going on an overpriced tour. So this is when I had more time. I was able to do things like this. And apparently in Arba Minch, they're very territorial about um, the guides that kind of own certain hotels. We were basically like talking to a bunch of different guides and we found one from... Uh, outside that we liked and gave us a good price but then um then he canceled on us mysteriously the day we, he was supposed to come pick us up so we were like what happened they're like oh they were blocking us and wouldn't let wouldn't let us come pick you up i'm like well that's kind of crazy what is going on and so it was almost like a mob of of tour guides that were at the hotel like the entrances and um like standing there watching us and didn't want us to leave and go with another tour guide. So we found another guide, not part of the mob. And um, he was also blocked from coming in. So we hatched a plan to meet him at a different hotel. Like, okay, let's just get out of this hotel because this hotel is crawling with these mob tour guides. And uh -huh. it, it sounds like something out of a movie, right? Like we had to find, um, they were blocking the exit when we were leaving. We had to fly, find a tuk-tuk that was willing to take us. And they were harassing this guy. Um, and they followed us to this other hotel. And they got, ended up getting kicked out of the hotel. The manager came. It, it was really crazy. So finally, the this local guide is still work, working with us. Or sorry, driver. And he says, take a bus to... Uh, not Tromso, Tromso's Norway, but there's another little village um, nearby, like an hour or two by bus, and I'll pick you up there. So we take a tuk-tuk 
to the bus station and they start following us. Like there's a group of probably 15 or 20 tour guides on mopeds and bicycles. And um, I'm like, gosh, they're going to, they're chasing us down. So I start filming with my Gina, phone. are you there? Just to get out video. Cause I'm like, otherwise, what am I, what am I going to do? Um, I uh, like, that was my only defense, right? I'll post it on social media if something happens. And then the guy, one of the guys came and got a little bit crazy and started trying to grab my, my phone and also my camera, my camera was around my neck. And so we were like having a tug of war. And so my God, I had a, like a, a thermos. So I grabbed the thermos and I'm like about trying to hit him. And um, this is still all while we're all moving. We're in the tuk tuk. He's on a, like the back of a motorbike. So it got a little bit physical. And then he's like, go to the police station. So I told the tuk-tuk guy, like, yeah, let's just go to the police station. At least there, there's a hope of being safe because I didn't know what to do there. And, you know, there was a lot of shouting. And basically, they, they wanted me to uh, delete whatever footage I had of, of him. And so we agreed that they would let us go to to the bus station alone if I deleted my footage. And so, yeah, this was like two days of being stalked by an angry mob of, of tour guides in Arbor Minch. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was looking over wow. my shoulder the whole time when we got to the other town. And even after we took off with the guide that we went with, but everything was fine. Nobody followed me, but I do not recommend Arba Minch as a place to, to find a guide because um, mm -hmm. they were very territorial and uh, hungry for business. Sure. <laughs> to to be honest with you, I've never heard of Ar Arbor Minch. Ar Arbor where is where? It's, it's, um, it's a couple hours from Oma Valley. So you would really only go there uh, or Jinka to, to go to Oma Valley and there's a lot in that region, the Southern Ethiopia. So you can go to, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to see. I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Ethiopia for work and for, for pleasure. Yeah. And um, uh -huh. there's a lot to see there. Oh, well, it's one of my favorites as I mentioned. Oh, that's right. Sure. So, and so, I was going to go back, um, yeah. but not to, not to Arbiminch. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Although I don't know if that's on a lot of people's lists. Um, so Gina, let me ask you, what is the, what's, what does one do after they complete every country in the world in December, 2022, you've gone to Mozambique. What, what does one do after afterwards? Do, did you have ideas or, you know, what have you been doing? Um, so yeah. So my favorite answer to that is whatever I want is what I'll do. Like, I don't have to adhere to a list. I'm not necessarily checking regions or like I said, I'm not collecting anything else aggressively. Um, so yeah, one thing I do is repeats. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about your future wife won't be able to go to, let's say Italy or whatever, but you may meet friends or your wife or something and be like, Oh my God, I would go anywhere with you or even friends. Like, my friends will ask me to go to places, obviously, that I may have been already. Um, I'm like, yeah, that would be so much fun with you. 
uh, or it's a different experience. So for example, I've only seen the Mandari and the Dinka. And so still on my list um, are <clears throat> six other tribes. And uh, a friend actually wanted me to go over Christmas to the, um, back to South Sudan again, but it just didn't work out. Um, so, so one thing is things I haven't seen like tribes um, or experiences I haven't had, festivals, for example, or places with people that I like to travel with. So and that's fine, fine for now for me. <laughs> sure. And and who are the people that you like to travel with? Oh, so uh, the the guy I was talking about, uh, Pascal, he's a, a friend from the Netherlands. We like to photograph tribes. Um, and then like I'm going to visit Jackie and Gunnar in, in Oslo right after Christmas because it, it's actually going to be a birthday for me. Um, even though I don't really celebrate birthdays, but um, mm -hmm. I am going up there and they're taking me to a top 50 cocktail bar. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> nice. It's a new entry on the list. So um, yeah, those are, those are a couple of, uh -huh. of my friends, but I have a lot of uh, travel friends uh, from, from the various communities that, mm -hmm. that I do trips with. So um in, a few months, I'm going to Syria. I won't say the exact date, um, but with mm -hmm. with Harry uh, Mistris, the the founder of of Nomad Mania, and he's organized a couple of small groups. So I'll be traveling with him. Um, yeah, and so. Do you have friends that don't travel uh, that still live in Dallas and message you all the time and say, I "What do. are you doing?" Yeah. Yeah, so I actually, I, I didn't get to talk about that, about the difficulty in not just my uh, ex, with my ex-husband, but even with non-travel friends or uh, they could be here or they could be in Dallas. It's really hard to maintain relationships. So I do have friends and we travel together, but just to normal places like um, they, they've come here already and We've done other trips like uh, to Scotland, for example, um, uh -huh. but you have to make a serious effort in doing it, uh, maintaining those friendships. And when you're at home or together with them, you have to make an effort to be present, as we talked about a little bit before, uh, before the, in our pre-discussion. Pre um, put the phone down. I think the hardest thing for me actually is the jet lag. Uh, so if you're gone for three weeks and then get back to, let's say, Dallas, and you're, you've been on a 12-hour different time schedule, it's really difficult to to stay awake and and go out and do fun things with your friends when you're not falling asleep. No, to jet lag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it very really challenging. But no, most, my good friends are really understanding about it. Um, and so, and people that I've just met here, they get to know me and they think it's interesting. So they're understanding. I think most people are understanding if you explain it. And and if they're a true friend, they, they get it. If You know, they understand. They make it work. <laughs> 
No, it, it it's very true. I always try to come back to the States every, no more than two months, just because I have nieces and nephew that I want to see. And I all my family lives out here. But when I'm here, I do spend a lot of time trying to meet up with everybody because I don't spend any time talking with people when I'm traveling. It's just too difficult. The time change. Uh, I actually get a little bit sad too because sometimes when I'm here, I'll see friends getting together. They have kids. They have they they're married, and I've, I I sometimes feel like that life is not that it's passed me by. I mean, mine's just a little bit delayed timeline. But a lot of times they say we didn't invite you because we didn't know that if you were in town. And yeah, people <laughs> stop calling when they think you're always gone. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But you really do have to make an effort. So when I'm here, I try to call them. I try to set up, you know, a dinner or a lunch or or something just because I do miss them. It's just we're just living different lives. What made you decide that I want to try to live in Portugal? Well, um, so in 2021, my husband and I, ex-husband, decided to split up and I wasn't as I was trying to do freelancing, but I didn't have an office. I didn't have much work or any work. Um, and I certainly didn't have an office to tie me down. So I thought about, I wanted to leave Texas. I, uh, it was t- more than time to leave Texas. And um, the only person that I thought about moving close to would have been my nephew. But I really wanted to move abroad because I had never lived abroad officially, even though I had worked abroad as uh, for long-term consulting assignments. Uh, and I thought it would be the right time to do it uh, rather than settling in a new place and thinking about it for later because later may never come. And so I first went to Georgia, the country, um, and not a lot of people I could say they decided to pick up from the U.S. and move to Georgia, the country. <laughs> I went there because I really wanted to do some traveling in the area. I had it booked, uh, some Russia travels and caucus travels. And Georgia's just a neat little country. There's endless things to do in terms of nature and hiking. Um, And the food and wine are great. And so it's also visa-free one year, so you don't have to do any paperwork. You just show up with your bags. I actually sold my car on the way to the airport. There's a CarMax near DFW. So I wow. went on the beach to, yeah. to Carmax and then went on to the airport and um, I arrived there. But unfortunately, it was right before the war started. Um, mm. And so uh, for many reasons, I was unfortunate. But a lot of people came to Russia, f- uh, sorry, Georgia, for, for the same reason I did, the visa-free one year. So a lot of Russians were fleeing their country because they didn't agree with the war and also Belarus. Russians and some Ukrainians. So the prices shot up um, in terms of housing. And actually, I never even got any housing because I showed up with the plan to Airbnb until I decided what area I liked, and then I would get an apartment. But the apartments became really scarce. And if you could even get one, it was triple the price that it was when I first arrived. So that's when I decided after a few months that I would start working on a, a proper residency permit for Portugal. Uh, quickly, well, what is triple the price in Georgia for an apartment? 
So when I first started scoping it out, the price for an apartment in the city center would have been four to $500 a month for just mm-hmm. a normal apartment, not mm-hmm. a, a dump or not nothing luxurious, just regular. So I felt mm-hmm. that was comfortable for me to leave my stuff there and do my travels. I was going to Lake Baikal in the winter and visit uh, some reindeer herders in mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere in Russia and visit all the Caucasus. Um, and so that was a manageable price point for me. Um, and then it was more like $1,500 for, for wow. a not so nice apartment. Okay. And at that point I thought that's just, it doesn't make sense because Georgia, it's a great place, but long-term it's just a little bit developing still. And that's, one of the reasons they weren't admitted to the EU, uh, in addition to some ties to Russia still, but it's still a developing country. Like at least once a month, there was some basic service that was out, whether it was, you know, water or electricity or, or something mm-hmm. like this. So, um, and there's not always great substitutes for Western sure. products that you were looking for. So yeah. I went to Turkey a couple times to take care of a few things that I, I couldn't find in, in Georgia, for example. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Long-term, maybe, you know, more than six months or a year mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't a great place for me. So yeah. after about six months, I really started uh, my project to move to, uh, to Portugal. And it was a project, right? You have to gather a bunch of paperwork and um, I did it myself. I didn't hire a lawyer, but yeah, there's a list of things you need to do to immigrate to any country. And um, yeah, so I started that project. I ended up getting the visa um, in late October. And so I moved back officially in November. So I did it all while I was either in Portugal or just traveling on other trips. Mm-hmm. So that made it extra, <laughs> extra challenging. No, that's great. Well, Gina, um, I know we've gone very long in the interview. Uh, I want to ask, where can we find you online to see more of your travels? Will you be documenting anything about life in Portugal? Yes. So um, I have a, a blog and I have Instagram. Those are my main two play and Facebook. And those are both just adventurous. Gina uh, is the Instagram and Facebook handle. And the blog is adventurousgina.com. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't have a regular cadence for posting, but I, I try in between you know, work and travels to to post both my travels and some things here from Portugal. Like, um, I don't know if you're into surfing, but there's a, a local surf place, Nazare, that has some of the biggest waves in the world. There's actually a world record of the biggest surfed wave in Nazare by a German wow. surfer. And yeah. the season is the winter. And so I signed last year. I signed up for Big Wave Alert, um, and it tells you what the, when the forecast is it's going to be big. And so, like t- uh, Friday and Saturday, they're supposed to be 15 meter waves. So that's like 45 foot waves. Wow. Yeah. So I'm heading out there, and hopefully, I'll get some good footage. Like um, I'm not sure I'll be able to get drone footage because it'll be really windy. 
mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of media out there and they might have, uh, you know, personal drones shut down. I'm not sure about that, but I have my camera and my phone yeah. um, and I'll be posting whatever footage I get. Cause I'm super excited. I'm not a surfer. Um, mm-hmm. I always wanted to learn to surf. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just, it didn't work out. Like I went to El Salvador to take surf lessons and the weather was bad and I haven't yeah. done it yet. But anyway, so I'll post that, that on my Instagram for sure. Maybe write a blog post about it. <laughs> Gina has been so great talking to you and uh, I am so excited for your new life in Portugal. And I actually go to Lisbon often, so I, I'm sure next time I'm there, I'll hit you up and maybe we can can show me some of these top 50 bars and uh, maybe even a Michelin restaurant. Yes, yeah. absolutely. We'll go to yeah. the Red Frog, Speakeasy, and uh, yeah. Ulysses. And yeah, definitely contact me. A lot of travelers pass through here, so I always try yes. to get together with them or... Uh, but yeah thanks so much for having me on it was a lot of fun i enjoyed it remember you can find more information about today's interview subject at pickmyadventure.com and discover more interviews don't forget to subscribe see you next time on pick my adventure i'm your host kevin Liu. you can find out more about me on instagram at pick my adventure traveler where i let you pick my destinations and travel activities through pulse